0: Beloved, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. We've got a large portion this morning. Uh, so let us commence by way of introduction. The preacher, the author there in Hebrews has been spending and spilling a lot of ink regarding and contrasting the, the old covenant order of worship in the Mosaic covenant with that of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, right? He's been juxtaposing the tabernacle, the priest, the sacrifices, all the rituals, all the ceremonial law with the one offering of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. Well, he continues here in chapter 10 because we know that repetition is the mother of all learning. Right, we know that. Those of us who are teachers, you repeat something. You have your students continue to repeat it. You grind it and drain, you, you drill it into their minds. Well, that's what the author is doing here, where he continues to contrast the Old Covenant animal sacrifices with the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us, and then we'll begin reading. Our God, we are fools to think that we could proceed further without the power of your Holy Spirit, the very Spirit who breathed out this very Word, exhaled it through your apostles and prophets. Lord, would you come in that same Holy Spirit, you yourself, O mighty God, and breathe on us and illuminate our minds to hear and understand only that which can be spiritually discerned. We're not looking for more data, we're looking to meet with the living God in his Word, in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, all according to the love of the Father. Be with us now, we pray. May you increase, may I decrease. Help me to preach in my weakness that your strength may be made perfect, that your saints might be equipped, that sinners would be lifted up and the proud and the haughty would be brought low. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had the experience of reading a mystery novel you think you know how it's going to end, only to be totally Surprise at the end, because you fail to to pick up the clues along the way, and as you sit there and you reflect back on the story that you 've read, you begin to think to yourself, "I should have seen it all along. Well you know the Bible functions very similarly. it works in this way, having read and seen the Hebrews, how God brings about redemption through Jesus, we now look back on the Old Testament. Now we have eyes to see. Now we have ears to hear. Now we have a mind that understands what the Old Testament's all about. It's all about Jesus. Everything before Jesus is all about the coming of Jesus, and everything thereafter is about him and himself, and his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection. And now here in Hebrews 10, the preacher reminds us how the old covenant sacrificial system itself foretold, right? The structure itself, the archetypal, right? The, the architecture of the covenant itself foretold and foreshadowed of what God was going to do in Jesus Christ. So let's listen now to the reading of God's word beginning in Verse 1 of chapter 10. He's just spoken about the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ who will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation for those who eagerly wait for him. He picks up here in chapter 10 verse 1. For since the law that is the the Mosaic covenant the broad sense is a reference to the priesthood the system of sacrifices established in the old covenant has but a shadow of the good things to come, of the true form of these realities. It, that old covenant, that Mosaic covenant, that picture book, can never by the same sacrifices that are continually or repeatedly offered every year, he's got the Day of Atonement in his mind, he's thinking Leviticus 16, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers would have had been once been cleansed and would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible of the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came to the world, he said from Psalm 40, verses 6-8, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I, Christ, said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desire nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he, Christ, added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we have been sanctified, that is definitively, perfectly, passively, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single or one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, or one offering, he has perfected. That is present passive. It's progressive. He's sanctifying us more and more. For all time, those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness for us. For after saying from Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant, the new covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he, the Spirit, adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. This morning, what I'd like to do is continue looking at this contrast and the two points I want to make are I want us to think of three reasons not to trust in those old covenant sacrificial animals and system, and then three reasons to trust in Christ's final sacrifice. So three reasons not to trust in the old covenant, not to trust in the works of the flesh, the Mosaic law and its totality, and then three reasons that we need to trust, that we do need to trust in Jesus Christ in his one offering. So first, three reasons not to trust in the Old Covenant sacrificial system. The first reason not to trust the Old Covenant sacrificial system is the sacrifices, sacrifices rather, according to the law, were but a shadow of the reality that came in Christ. The Old Covenant sacrificial system was but a shadow of the reality that came in Christ. Now remember the whole point of the book. The author is writing to Jewish Christians who've embraced Messiah, Jesus Christ, as God's final word of salvation. And they've begun well. They're walking with God. They're communing with God. They're meeting together, though some are finding it a little difficult because persecution is starting to heat up in the visible church. And many are contemplating abandoning Jesus and returning once again to the familiar, returning back to the tabernacle, back to the old covenant sacrifices, the altars, the priests, the, the rituals and all that comes with the Mosaic covenant. And the author sets down to write to warn them not to do it. Why? Because he tells us here in verse one, because the old covenant, the old Mosaic covenant, was provisional. Look what he says in verse one, "For since the law has but a shadow." of the good things. Well, what are the good things? The good things, antecedently, are Christ and the new covenant and all that he's brought. They are but the shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It, that is the law, can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Now you remember in chapter 7 when we went through that chapter, We saw in verse 19 of chapter 7, what did we say about the law? The law perfects what? Nothing. You see, it's but a shadow. The law cannot perfect anything. It was never God's intention that the law would perfect his people. You see, saints, the Mosaic Covenant law was merely a shadow. It was not the reality. It was not the substance itself. All those animal sacrifices were mere shadows. It's not that God had not ordained the old covenant sacrificial system, but rather that that covenant had served its purpose. It was only ever intended to be provisional, to be temporary, like the relationship between a person and their shadow, right? A shadow doesn't contradict the reality But it's not the reality. A shadow can tell us many things, but it doesn't tell us the whole story. It can provide a general outline. It tells something about the reality. But once you have the real thing, once you have all that the old covenant was pointing forward to, which is God incarnate in Jesus Christ, Messiah, God's final word, why in the world would you ever return back to those old covenant shadows, back to the picture book of Moses. It's kind of like this. We, we said this, and I gave this illustration before. You set out to build a house. You hire a draftsman, an architect, to draw up the plans. You've conversed with your wife. She has the beautiful house that she's always dreamed of. And you might even have a scale made to model to imitate the house that's going to be. That scale, those blueprints, are not the reality. Once the house is fully completed, what do you do with the blueprints? Well, you put them away in a closet in the garage. You don't go back to the blueprints. You press on in the reality. You move into the house. And that's the problem here in the book of Hebrews. These Christians are wanting to go back to the familiar, to the known, because the known is comfortable. The known can be controlled, right? And he's writing them, don't go back. He reminds them again and again, the old covenant sacrifices were only shadows, only provisional. They could never perfect those who drew near and would draw near to the living God. The blood of animals cannot get the job done. It cannot get the job done. And I thought to myself, as I thought about that, what what application is there here for us? Why did the people want to go back to the shadows? Well, I think existentially, they're being persecuted. They're saying, I'm not sure about following this crucified Savior who says, take up your cross and follow me, for who wants to save his life must lose it. For he who keeps his life will, will lose it, right? That's one reason. But also I believe that some people prefer rituals. Some people prefer empty ceremonies. Why? I think they love the ritual idea. They love the familiar. They, they love the known as opposed to the unknown. It's not that in the New Covenant we, we don't have rituals, right? We have the Lord's Supper. We're going to observe it later this morning. But in comparison to the Old Covenant, there are very few rituals, right? It's pretty plain Jane in the New Covenant worship compared to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is packed with holy places and rites and rituals and holy days. But not so in the New Covenant, right? We have two sacraments and we have a Lord's Day. But what I have found is that some people actually prefer shadows. Why is this? Because shadows are manageable, You can exercise control over them. You can have God on your own terms, you see. You just check a few boxes, right? You just come and show up. You sit there and you fall asleep (laughs) as the pastor wanes on, right, oftentimes. You just check a few boxes. You get done with it and you go on with your life. You see, you keep God at a distance. These things are just empty formalities, Friends, think about how different that is to an actual relationship. Relationships on a whole don't work like that, particularly the relationship with the living God. He's not a box that we can check and then move on from. You see, he doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. And while some rituals are good and right, they're, they're shadows. And we need to remember that they're not the reality. Jesus is the reality. Jesus Himself is the reality to which all the shadows in the old covenant pointed forward to. And these folks here in Hebrews are in danger of going backward. Well, that leads to a second reason not to trust the old covenant sacrificial system. Notice what he says there. If the old covenant animal sacrifices would have taken away sins, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Right? If the animal sacrifices had got the job done then they'd have stopped being offered. But that's not what happened. Look at the logic of verse 2. In other words, the very repetitive nature of the animal sacrifices themselves, the, the very structure of the Mosaic Covenant and the ceremonial law itself, should have been a clue that they could not secure forgiveness. You see, a clean conscience was not going to be acquired and obtained through the blood of animals. Again, the animal sacrifices were signs. They were not the reality Every morning and every evening, day after day, week after week, year after year, they had to be offered over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because they were not the reality. They were signs pointing to the reality, to Jesus Christ. You see, the whole system itself screamed that something more, someone else was needed. And moreover, if the old covenant sacrifices had been affected, then according to verse 2, we're told that the worshiper would have no longer had any consciousness of sin. If the blood of animals could have secured forgiveness, then they no longer would have stood condemned for their sins. So at this point, you're wondering, then what's the whole point? Why did God give the Mosaic Covenant? Why did he give all of these shadows? Why did he give the ceremonial law? What was he trying to do? What was its purpose? What was it really accomplishing? Look at verse 3. He gives us the answer. Why the Mosaic Covenant? Notice what he says. He tells us, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. You see, the repetition of the offerings, while not able to save and secure forgiveness, did remind the people every day, every week, every month, every year, that things are desperate, that God is holy. You're not holy. Things are not well with your soul. You need a Savior. You see, the sacrifices reminded the people that they were sinners. The sacrifices were not saying, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, let's just all get along. That's not what they were saying. No, they were repeatedly telling the people that God is holy, that the people were not holy. But not only the, the sacrificial system, not only the ceremonial laws, how about the, the purity laws? The book of Leviticus, how many of you read the book of Leviticus. Don't touch a man who has leprosy, lest you be unclean. Don't touch a corpse, lest you be unclean. Everywhere you look, there's uncleanness, uncleanness, uncleanness. Why? Because all of these things are symbolic of our sin and our uncleanness in Adam. And to think the blood of bulls and goats can propitiate, can make atonement for human sin. Oh, what folly! And yet many were wanting to go back to this very thing. All of those walls, all of those partitions, right? The tabernacle itself, the way it was structured with with compartments. And there was the Holy of Holies and only the priest once a year in the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, could he go into the Holy of Holies. Not only for the sins of the people, but for his own sins. He would show you the blood of a bull, you see. Saints, all of these laws were reminding the people that they were not okay, that they were unclean, as Paul will say in rather Romans three nineteen. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The whole Mosaic covenant itself was always pointing forward. And by faith, beloved, the regenerate Israelite within the nation in the Old Covenant was always looking through and past all of those animals. Right? Simeon and Anna, two perfect examples of Old Testament saints who were truly regenerate, who had their hearts circumcised. They're there in the temple. Do you think Simeon and Anna are really looking to the blood of bulls and goats to take away their sin? No, they were looking forward to the one through whom all those animals were pointing forward, Jesus Christ himself. And that leads us to the third reason not to trust, the old covenant sacrificial system. Notice what it says here in verse 4. It is impossible. Now this word is extremely strong in the Greek. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, how about if you sacrificed a, a thousand cattle? Impossible. How about if you did a thousand cattle for a thousand years? Impossible. It will never be enough. It would never be enough. And not only does that show us that every animal sacrifice will never be enough, it also shows us how every effort, every good work, Every good intention, everything that we do, humanly speaking, will never be what? Enough. It's impossible to secure atonement through anything we do whatsoever. That leads us to the good news in verse 5. But if if you're going to understand the, the good news, it's a prerequisite that you understand the bad news. You see, Jesus came to save sinners, not the righteous. It's the sick who need a doctor, right? If you give a cure to someone who doesn't believe they're sick, they're going to be like, I don't need to take that. This is why you need to spend so much time going over the law of God until they begin to understand that they've transgressed the law of God. That they can come to the place where they say, not only are we sinners, but they can say with David, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in their sight. You see, people don't have a personal conviction of sin, so they don't need a personal Savior. They don't need Jesus Christ. This is why he spends so much time showing them the inadequacy, uh, the insufficiency of the old covenant. But notice, secondly, this second point, the three reasons to trust Christ's final sacrifice. Look at the first reason. Jesus does not offer animal sacrifices. What does he offer? His own personal body in verses 5 to 10. To prove this, the author invites his audience to look at Psalm 40 to see how all along it was God's intention that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, would clothe himself with our body, that he would become nothing through addition by taking to himself our humanity, our nature, and a body like ours, that he might offer what? the blood of bulls and goats? No. That he might offer himself as a sacrifice for sinners. Notice what he says in verse 5, right? Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he, Christ, said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And the author cites this psalm of David as the words of Jesus himself. And in context, Psalm 40, David declares his gratitude for all that God had done in delivering him. And he also tells how the mere outward religious ritual and animal sacrifices were inadequate. They were insufficient. They were never enough. Notice what he says in verse 6 And burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. You see, saints, we see here that the Old Testament itself acknowledged the limitations of the sacrificial system. The Old Covenant was never intended to be God's final word. That Christ declares in Psalm 40 that God the Father had ordained something better. That he ordained that his son would become a man and offer not animal sacrifice, but a body he had prepared for him. He would offer himself. You see, beloved, from the very beginning, God the Father had planned that his son would clothe himself with our humanity, that his priesthood would not be about offering animal sacrifices, but about himself, offering himself. This is why in chapter 2 he says he had to be made like his brothers in every way. He had to become like the children of Abraham, that he might live the life that they failed to live and die the death that they deserved to die. And Jesus here continues in verse 7 demonstrating his willingness to come as a sacrifice he says behold i have come to do your will O god as it's written to me in the scroll you see he's speaking here of the incarnation this is a christmas sermon in many ways the cross of christ was not an accident christ came willingly consciously intentionally he went obediently to the cross as a substitute for his people Unlike the lambs in the old covenant system who were taken to slaughter, not understanding what was happening, lambs didn't wake up every day and go, I'm going to the altar today to give my life as a sacrifice, foreshadowing the great sacrifice the Lamb of God would bring. No, that's not what they did. They went reluctantly dragged to the altar. But here is the writer to the Hebrews telling us that no, Jesus Christ, the King of Israel, David's greatest son, in full obedience, willingly, sacrificially offered up himself, the sacrifice that God desired, the one in which God the Father delights. You see, beloved, do you not see the love of God for you in Jesus Christ? God the Father gives him, but then he gives of himself likewise in laying down his life for you. No one took it from him. The cross was not an accident. The Romans were not too strong, the Jews not too powerful. No, the Son of God set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, and he suffered and died in your place. He who knew no sin became sin, that you and him might become the righteous of God, that God the Father loved you, that the Son loved you, that the Holy Spirit ordained this to be so. You see, Christ did what he did because he loves you. And the preacher tells us in verse 9, notice what he says, Christ did away with the first. What is the first? What is the first thing he did away with? The first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that he might establish what the second, that is the new covenant. So, what Christ did in establishing the new covenant by giving his own body has once for all time made obsolete the old covenant sacrificial system. The shadows of the animals, the sacrifices, have given way to the once-for-all-time reality of Jesus' bodily sacrifice. That's why we don't have priests in Protestant churches. There are no altars in this church. Nor is Christ offered again and again and again. He has been offered once for all. And then notice also the result of Christ's bodily, exercise, bodily sacrifice. In verse 10, what he accomplished what the law could never do. Notice what he says there. And by that will, right, Christ's willing obedience to his Father's will, we have been sanctified. And this word here, sanctified, is the perfect tense, meaning something that happened in the past but has ongoing implications, ongoing effects through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Church, do you see what it's saying? It's saying you have been sanctified definitively in Jesus Christ. You're no longer in Adam the first, you're now in Adam the last, the second Adam. You've been transferred, you've been translated. Your GPS, spiritually speaking, is brand new. You're no longer in Adam, you're no longer condemned. You now have been made perfect in Jesus Christ. You've been perfectly sanctified, positionally, definitively in Jesus. This leads us to our second reason to trust in Christ's final sacrifice. And we've said this before, but it bears repeating because the author repeats it over and over because he wants us to see it. Notice what Christ did. He sat down in verses 11 to 14 Verse 11, we're told that every priest stands daily in the service of the temple. What priest? The priest in the Old Covenant, in the picture book of Moses. They always were standing, always standing daily in the service. You remember the picture of the tabernacle that I gave you a few weeks ago, right? We had the holy place and the most holy place and the altar and the table showbread and the candelabra, right? The, the, the light The showbread and everything was in this place. But what was absent? There were no chairs because no one ever sat. Over and over again, the priests were always working, always offering repeatedly, continually the sacrifices, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. Why? Because God was teaching the people through the repetition, through the redundancy. This cannot get the job done. The blood of bulls and animals cannot wash away your sin. It cannot cleanse your conscience because the law perfects nothing. All of it was pointing forward to the one who would come in the fullness of time, born of a virgin under the law, to fulfill the law as a covenant of works. You are saved by works, just not your own. You're saved by the works of Jesus Christ. Christ has come to fulfill the law. In his act of obedience, and bearing in his own body on the tree the curse of the law. And where that you've broken the law and condemned by that law, Christ became a curse for us. But notice, notice what it says in verse twelve, He sat down. You see, you only sit when the work's done. Rick didn't sit yesterday until late in the afternoon because the work at the church was not done. He finally sat down and he texted me and he said, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Beloved, do you see what it's saying? Do you see what it's saying here? In John 19, 31, when the Son of God at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, when he cries out with the Psalm 22 on his lips and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that very moment, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you, that your sins are paid for in full, you're forgiven. Past, present, and future sins are forgiven. You're definitively sanctified. God does not remember your sins, so why do you remember them? All right, as Daniel exhorted us. Oh, beloved, what a great gospel we have. What a great God we have. Christ's work is done. His sacrifice got the job done once for all. He's not repeatedly offered At the Lord's table, we don't offer up the the body of Christ again and again and again. No, Christ has been offered once for all. And now he sits at the Father's right hand, a position of authority, right? A clear allusion again to Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus Christ, the priest king in the order of Melchizedek, now sits as David's son and heir, the king of kings and lord of lords. And what's he doing? We're told in verse 13. What is he doing as he sits at the Father's right hand right now? What does it say? He's waiting. He's waiting until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. You see what he's saying? He's telling us that church, not only is He the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, He's also telling us that He's the Lamb of God who's accomplished so great a salvation for His people. That now He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That He is both and. He is Lion and Lamb, and we must never forget that. That He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah who will one day return to judge all of His and our enemies. He's meek and mild and gentle and lowly, yes, but he's also anointed Son and Lord that sinners must kiss lest he be angry with them. You see, that's why the psalmist in Psalm 2 says, blessed are those who take refuge in him because they've kissed the Son. You see, there is no safety from him, only in him. What the law could not do, and that is to make us perfect. We're told in verse 14, by a single offering, Christ has perfected. What does it say? For all times, those who are being sanctified. So not only are you positionally sanctified definitively, notice what he's saying here. Here it's a present passive, meaning you're also being progressively sanctified. Each and every day, right? Putting on, putting off, becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ progressively, you see. Well, that leads to the third and final reason to trust Christ's final sacrifice. The Father gave the Son. The Son gave himself, and we're told here that the Holy Spirit assures us that our sins really are forgiven. Notice what he does. The preacher has already cited Jeremiah 31 in chapter 8, but now he, preaches, he, he cites it again, right? He quotes it once again. You see, we have the internalization of the new covenant as God works from the inside out. We're told there in Hebrews 10, 16 and 17, notice what he says as he's quoting from Jeremiah I will put my laws on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And the Spirit adds, secondly, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. And then finally, in verse 18, the preacher declares, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. You see what he's saying? The finality of Christ's finished sacrifice is final. It's over. You've been perfected forever. You've been sanctified definitively he's now progressively sanctifying you he's justified you he's brought you into saving union with jesus christ and there no longer remains an offering for sin because full pardon and forgiveness has been secured in christ once for all sacrifice you see believer you are forgiven this morning while this side of heaven you're not perfect you still sin in this life But your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. And while your fellowship and communion with Christ can be broken, your saving union, right, your saving union that unites you to Jesus Christ cannot be broken. This is why we sing. This is why we're going to sing in just a moment, Take My Life and Let It Be. What else can we do but to sing and praise God for all that he's done in Jesus Christ? Let's do that. Even now, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can rest in his finished work, his once for all sacrifice. Lord, that we can rest and lay our head on the pillow of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ himself is the Lord our righteousness, and that to have him is to have everything, and yet to have everything and not him is to have nothing. So, Lord, would you come this day and bless the word that we have read, the word that we have heard expounded, that you would grow our faith to grow in our assurance of salvation, that we are positionally sanctified in Jesus Christ definitively, that we're now seated with him in heavenly places as Ephesians 2 reminds us. And yet we know also that we do not live in heaven yet in its totality. The consummation has not come, so we yet live out this Christian life in this present evil age as sojourners, ex- exiles, marching through this barren land. And those things that we want to do, we don't always do. And those things that we don't always do, we do. Lord, who will rescue us from this body of sin and death? We praise you that it's Jesus Christ and his finished work. In his present intercession that saves us, saved us, is saving us, and will save us until the last day. So, Lord, keep us faithful, we pray. Continue to give us your holy desires that we might walk in the obedience, new obedience to Jesus Christ, that we might delight in your law, that we might hide it in our hearts, that we may not sin against you. We pray and we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.